Dictionary.com defines utopia in the following way. Utopia, an imaginary island described in Sir Thomas More's Utopia as enjoying perfection in law, politics, and economics, an ideal place or state. Number three, any visionary system of political, economic, or social perfection. Well, since the 15th century and Thomas More used this term utopia to describe this island, it has become the epitome of what we think of as a perfect society. However, as we all know, there is no such thing as utopia this side of heaven. Although people have tried through the ages, uh, there was Marxism, communism, socialism, capitalism, all these are attempts of political, economic, and social of ways of bringing about the best kind of society, and all of them fail. So Marxism and communism fails, not because it didn't eradicate all economic classes, but because it maintained power in the hands of a few, and they oppressed the rest. Socialism fails because sooner or later you run out of other people's money to spend. Capitalism fails because free market economies only produce free market slaves to free market goods that fuel greed as much as it does generosity. Even the mythical Camelot, for those of you familiar with that story, failed because the quintessential knight of virtue and honor, Sir Lancelot, had an inappropriate affair with his king, King Arthur's wife, Guinevere. Every one of these things fail because they all share the same common denominator. It's not because that their all ideas are all inherently bad. Some of them actually have good concepts and principles behind them. But they all fail because they have the same common denominator, us, people. So the French philosopher Sartre said in his play, No Exit, hell is other people. <laughs> Fun guy. But regardless of the fact that we know utopia will not exist, that doesn't stop people from looking for it. They just don't use the word. So people are on the lookout constantly for the perfect church or the perfect social group or that perfect relationship or that perfect friendship. They're looking for that perfect school, the perfect family, but the reality is nothing will be perfect because they all share the same fundamental flaw. They all consist of us, people. One author wrote, even if you're able to find the perfect school, church, political body, or a group of friends the moment that you joined it, it would be ruined. It's true. Utopia does not exist, but the Bible is very clear. It tells us that there is one community, although very imperfect and flawed because it's full of people, a community that is to offer hope, to point to the fact that there can be a society, there can be a society like this, and it's the church. Now, we've learned together for the last two or three weeks two very important realities about the church. First, number one, it is a community that is established firmly in its identity in Jesus Christ as its foundation, which results in a radically countercultural understanding of freedom. Our identity is in Christ. It is not in our socioeconomic standings, it's not in our ethnicity, it's not in our nationality, it's not in our gender, it's not in our education, it's not in our vocation, it's not in anything that is temporal that can be taken away from us. Our identity is rooted and grounded in something that death itself cannot take away. Our identity is as sons and daughters of the King. That's what the community, that's what the church is made up of, people who have an identity in Christ. That's the first thing we learn. The second we learn is that this community is being transformed in its character by and through the power of the Holy Spirit of God Himself. 
because of this new identity that results in the freedom that the gospel brings. Now, these two results create a community of people that are led and animated by the Spirit of God that shows itself in very practical ways, and that's what Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10 is trying to get at. It's displaying the practical ways that this community conducts their affairs. It is a concern for others, fighting for the holiness of one another and fighting against each other's sin, meeting practical needs needs, doing good generally to all, but particularly those of the faith. So if the last ten verses of Galatians 5 was instructing us of what it means to be individuals that are led by the Spirit of God, the first ten verses of Galatians 6 shows what that looks like as we gather together week in and week out. And you're going to notice, uh, as you're paying attention, two major themes, maybe you've picked it up as Lindsay read it to us so well, uh, themes that are actually pillars to the kind of community that's necessary, pillars for a kind of utopian society, but are actually values that our culture rejects whole cloth, which brings the irony of a society looking for a utopia but rejecting the very values that it's based upon, mutual accountability and personal responsibility. Now, I'll unpack that a little bit at the end, uh, but I just want to tease that out so that you're aware of it. We know that there's no utopia here, this side of heaven, but Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10 offers us some solid counsel on how to live together that points us in the right direction. And our, our 10 verses are broken down into two big sections. Verses 1 through 5, <clears throat> the practice of life together driven by the the theme of bearing one another's burdens, and then verses 6 through 10, the principle that the practice is based on of life together, which is what you sow, you will reap. So we have a lot to cover. Let me just draw your attention to the very first thing in verse 1. Paul begins this section on gospel community and life together by addressing something that's very common in a fallen world, the same dynamic that makes every utopian society a near impossibility, but something that's so important that we learn to do, how to deal with someone who's struggling in sin. Now, you notice Paul's words there in that phrase, caught in any transgression, and that can mean everything from someone who is willfully engaged in overt sin, act, sinful actions or someone who mistakenly errs through a misstep of their own or some kind of ignorance and is now overtaken, caught by surprise by the result of that sin. Either way, Paul's leading point here is that you'll have to know how to help each other fight against sin, because that's all throughout the fabric of a fallen world. Now, before we unpack verse 1 more, I want to draw your attention to verse 2. That's really the engine of this very first uh, five verses. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, that's a, a short phrase, but it is packed. Bear one another's burdens... And so, as a result, therefore, you do this, this happens, fulfill the law of Christ. That is a huge statement on Paul's behalf. Let's do something here. Let's exercise in a practice of building a theology. As Christians, we cannot relate to God piecemeal verses here and there. We have to synthesize all these verses we know and build a a view of reality that we can live out of, and that's what theology does. Keep your finger in Galatians. Go to John's Gospel, chapter 13. John's Gospel, chapter 13. 
records one of the final, uh, this is the final week of Jesus' life. It's an amazing uh, section of John's gospel from 13 on. And Jesus, speaking to His disciples, says in John 13, verse 34, John 13, verse 34, you could say in in a sense, Jesus is really giving His marching orders to His disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Go over a couple chapters to John 15 and verse 12. Jesus says this, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, the word commandment, uh, when it's used in the singular, it often refers to the entirety of the Old Testament law. So, Jesus is saying, this is the law I'm giving you right now. You good Jews, you're used to the law and the Torah and all the, the laws we've made from that. Let me just tell you what it is. Here it is. It's one word, love one another. Luke 23, 56, if you're a note taker, write that down where you, where you see clearly that when he says just command, he means the entirety of the law. So, let's keep that in our minds. Jesus is saying, here's a new command I give you, that you love one another. Go back to the book of Galatians. In chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, Paul is saying in Galatians 5.14, to love our neighbor is to fulfill the law. That sounds a lot exactly like Jesus said in John 13. So, what we have here are three different phrases, bear one another's burdens, love our neighbor, and fulfill the law of Christ. All three different phrases are actually equivalent statements. What this shows us is To love one another as Christ does does not necessarily mean some heroic, spectacular deed of self-sacrifice. Actually, in the context of Galatians in particular, loving like Christ does is much more along the lines of the mundane, ordinary, burden-bearing ministry of living life together. So, when someone is carrying a heavy burden, whether it's in their heart or in their mind, Paul saying, come alongside them and help them bear that burden. Bearing each other's burdens is the practical application of Galatians 5, 13 and 14, of John 13, 34, of John 15, 12. And I love uh, the metaphor that, that Paul is using. He says, bear the burden." If you've ever seen or have heard the phrase beasts of burden, you know what, they carry things with them. Whether it's someone who is deliberately sinning and pursuing a lifestyle of sin, or somebody who in ignorance committed sin or did something because they didn't know any better and are, are reaping the results of it, Paul says, you get in there and you help them. If they are pursuing sin and they don't know any better, you help them by pointing it out and turning them from it. And the metaphor of bearing that burden is, you, you can't bear a burden from afar, right? You ever tried lifting weights with your hands like this? What, do you, what can you hold? Maybe 15, 20 pounds maybe? But when you get up underneath that weight and you get close next to each other, you can bear exponentially more. The point is, you can't bear a burden at an arm's distance. You have to get close up to someone, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, under the weight, and say, we're going to do this together. Let's go. Paul says, when you see someone caught in any transgression, whether it was deliberate of their own doing or they didn't realize that this was going to happen, come alongside them. 
Don't throw stones. Don't laugh at them. Don't say, hey, stew in your own juices. You come alongside them, and you help them bear it. He says, I'm going to show you what it means to fulfill that law of Christ in these three simple phrases in verse 2. He says, here's the goal, here's the means, and the method to do this. The goal of bearing that burden right there is to restore your brother. It's not to make them see what a horrible sinner they are or what a rotten Christian they are. It's to restore them. In the, in the original, the verb katarizo means to, to put into order or put back in place, set things right, and it referred to the mending of bones particularly. It is this idea of something is horribly broken and misshapen. Your job is to set it right and, and be there. And this can be everything from, from teaching them sound doctrine and discipling them to paying their rent. It can be everything from holding them accountable to their scripture memory program to the way they're parenting their kids in moments of anger and despair. It, it can be all kinds of ways, spiritually, physically, financially, emotionally, do whatever it takes to set things right and get them back to where they need to be. That's what you need to do. You want to restore them. That's the goal. Restore your brother and sister if they're caught in some kind of transgression. So the, the goal is that. The means to do it, I love this. Paul says the means to do it is you, the Galatians. A community of people who are enabled and animated by the Spirit. Uh, the, the loving ministry that they're going to exercise is to restore one another in Christ. And notice all through this book of Galatians, Paul is not talking to the leadership of the Galatian church. Conspicuously absent, as in some of his other epistles, is Paul's commands to the leaders, to the elders of the church. In chapter 1, when he's talking about the false gospel that they embrace and that the need to hold on to the truth and fight for the gospel, he talks to the congregation and says, that's your job. In chapter 6, when he's talking about restoring people who are erring in sin, he talks to the congregation and says, that's your job. It is not the job of the professional Christians or the elders of a church to take on those burdens alone. He says to the Galatians, that's you. By the way, that, that's why congregationalism, that's why being a part of a local church is so important because that's where you get to use your gifts. And that's why as a church, at, when it's necessary, we will bring matters of church discipline to the membership's attention. Because it's not just for me or the elders to deal with. That is something, if we're going to restore a brother and sister, in some extreme cases, it requires all hands on deck so that we can restore a brother and sister. So, so Paul talks about the goal, he talks about the means, and then he talks about the method right there. You see, he says, you do this thing. I just feel like I was on American Idol just now, though. Spotlight came in. Um, you do, thank you, that's very helpful. You do this thing with gentleness and humility. Friends, when you're working with somebody, you're dealing with somebody in sin, it, you're going to have, there's got to be a gentleness and humility because that is born from an understanding, a biblical understanding that we, we ourselves are weak and in need and can be tempted in like manner that we are likely to struggle. Notice that Paul says that in the verse, keeping watch on ourselves, knowing we're liable to struggle as well. Friends, in this sense, sin, like suffering, is something that, um, sin is like suffering in that we all will do it. 
That's the common denominator for, for all of our variety in this church. We're all going to experience sin, we're all going to sin, and we're all going to suffer. The only difference between the sin and suffering we do as a community is in the degree and situation. But it's going to be the same kind of experience. That's why, you know, we live in a culture where we're, we're always saying we want to be one, but we're always saying things like, well, you don't understand me, you're not like me, you haven't walked in my situation, so you can't speak to this. We're always putting up these walls that, that say we're so much more different than we are alike. But the reality, the Bible says that our sin and our suffering, it's the same kind of thing. It's only different in the degree and situation. So, I do not know the suffering of, of, of my spouse betraying me. I don't know what that's like. So for those of you who have had to endure an unfaithful husband or wife, I don't know that specific path. But I do know what it's like to be betrayed by someone you've trusted, to have that relationship shattered, to, to make you come to this, the, the discouraging realization that what you thought was there was a facade and not there at all. I, I understand that. So I may not know what it's like for my for my wife to have betrayed me, but I know betrayal, right? And in the same way, when someone's struggling with a sin, I don't have to have sinned in the exact same way to recognize I can understand the kind of sin you did. Because in those situations, the same kind of dynamics come in my heart. I may not sin the way you do, but it might, I might sin some other way. You know, there's a thousand ways some of you might sin that I will never sin, but for every one of them, there's an analog, a common impulse in my own heart. Does that make sense? Just as you may not sin the way I sin, but there's going to be an analog in your heart as well because we're all dealing in the same reality. We're all living in a fallen world, and we all have the same human heart that responds either in the spirit or in the flesh to that world. And so, so often when we confront people in sin, if we do that, we, we get caught up on the details and the minutia and the specifics, and that's why it always goes horribly wrong because we forget, oh man, I could do that. The details and specifics are not nearly as important as the temptation and the struggle and the pain that it brought. And Paul says, you need to realize that when you're trying to restore someone or you're going to miss that person's experience. You'll get caught up on the details and specifics and miss that that could be you, and one day you might need that person's ministry back to you, and you want them to be gentle and humble. So he says, restore in this way. So Paul, just in these two verses, gives us some amazing practical instruction on how to do life together. The question is, why then is it so rare in our churches and our own communities, right? It's, it's, why don't we see this enough? Well, here's three common mistakes that people often make when it comes to dealing with sin. Number one, common mistakes regarding Galatians 6.2, uh, we don't take sin seriously enough, right? And, and that might be kind of the mistake of the, the world out there, maybe a relativist or a secular culture that sin, what is that? That's just a, the holdover of some religious dogma. There's no such thing as sin, so we don't take it seriously. Number two, uh, we think we're above the sin, so this might be the mistake, friends, of if you've been in, in, in the church for a long time, maybe more the religious heart, the, the legalist, I wouldn't do that kind of thing, you know. Um, or three, which is I think where most people are, we're sinners ourselves, right? So, so who are we to try and assume to correct others? I mean, we, we, we're, we're just as bad or worse, so who am I? It, it's a good impulse, right, but it, it's misguided. So these are three common mistakes. We either don't take it seriously enough, or we think we're above it, or man, who am I to say that? Because I would do the same thing. 
But the antidote to that is because we can't fall prey to any of those because the Bible clearly tells us right now we have to engage. So the antidote to that is remembering the gospel, right? Just remembering the gospel. Think, think about it, friends. When you think about the gospel, it says that the fact that Jesus had to die for you demands that we take sin seriously, deadly serious. The fact that the Son of God had to die, we should take sin deadly serious. But the gospel also tells us that we are worse than we could have possibly imagined, that it actually required such a one as Jesus to die for you? You must be really bad off, buddy, right? Think about it. It it took Jesus to die for you. You are not above any sin. But because Jesus willingly died for you, you are more loved than you could have possibly ever believed. And that's what this person needs to know. They don't need to know what a great sinner you are. That's clear. They need to know what a great Savior Christ is. And that's what what motivates you when you seek to restore them, is what a great Savior Christ is. This World War II theologian um, and German pastor who fought against Hitler said this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin Nothing could be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Friends, God's plan to get us through the difficulty of this fallen world is a people. Sartre would say, hell is other people. God would say, that's actually part of the key of your redemption is too, is people transformed by the gospel and conformed into the image and likeness of Christ. This is just another reason while being connected, not simply attending a local church, is so important. If you've been in a local church, you know, I've been in part of a church, uh, it's about almost, almost 30 years now since I became a Christian, and over those years, and I'm sure you have stories, I have seen families restored, marriages saved, I've seen people give financial support, food, mentoring, physical, emotional support, cars, money, you name it, people would gather around and help brothers and sisters out. And it's beautiful, and you go, that's the stuff the world needs to see. But friends, you have these stories as well, and I, and I get them, just, I frequently talk to people. I frequently talk to people going through difficulties, and when they reach out for the church to help them, there is nobody there to respond. Now, the the, the reasons are generally always the same. The details are different, but the reasons fundamentally are the same. It's because they were never part of a local body of believers. Just this week, I was having a conversation with a woman, and my heart went out to her. I genuinely, and I think she genuinely knew we wanted to help, but there were some reasons we couldn't get involved. She, for one, they, she lived 40 minutes away from us. But, but talking to her, and she was saying, oh, I love Jesus, I love the Lord, and you know, I got to do a Bible study. And I say, your situation's so dire. Why are you calling a church that you don't even know 40 minutes from you? Where is your church? Where are your elders? Where's the people in your body? Well, I don't go to church. I'm not, I'm not part of a church. And... and And I knew, I've done this enough, that I knew what she needed now is compassion and some wise counsel. But in my mind, you know, it's, she's telling me about how much she loves the Lord and loves Jesus, and I'm thinking, that's that's nothing. Jesus Jesus is easy to love. I mean, mean, he walks on water, folks, right? The, The standard of perfection. He walks on water. He's perfect. He's easy to love. 
He's kind, he's gentle, he's wise, he's sovereign, he's just, he's good. Loving Jesus, you tell me you love Jesus, doesn't tell me anything. You've got to be crazy not to love Jesus. How about loving me? How about, how about loving half of you? How about loving any of you? That's hard. I'm just being honest, right? All right? Some of you are harder than others, mind you. But my point is, hey, man, anyone can tell me they love Jesus. You'd be crazy not to love Jesus. Jesus is amazing. Can you love me with all my shortcomings and, and, and neurosis and problems and issue and self-centeredness and sin? Can you, can you love these people? See, what happens is, and I believe this woman's, I'm going to believe her profession's genuine. At least I want to. But she has bought, like so many people, the lie of our culture that autonomy is freedom. And she didn't realize that she was duped. Autonomy is actually isolation. And when the bottom falls out, as it inevitably will, she will get, people will get what they've wanted with their lifestyles to be alone on your own. The autonomous individual. We don't want to be, you, you don't want to be that person. We don't want to be that kind of a church where that happens all the time. Get dialed in. Don't just be seen here. Be known here. Join a community group. Serve in ministry. Get to know some of these amazing people you're sitting next to. Pour your lives out for the sake of others. Have other people do the same for you. Become a member, not just an attender. Make a covenant to say through thick and thin, I'm with you people. Whether I like you or not, whether I agree with you or not, I'm making a covenant to love you like Christ loved me in all my messiness. And through our relationship, both the good and the struggles, man, we're going to be refined to be more like Him together. Now, if you're new here at, at Christ Community Church, let me just give you two practical things you can do. First practical thing is, number one, fight the impulse to just flee as soon as service is over. I see this all the time. Hey, service is over. We got 30 seconds before the building's going to blow up. We got to get out of here. Why do they go? I mean, what is the deal? The, the building never blows up. We're going to, it's fine. Just linger, all right? The service will get done. Just hang out. We're not kicking you out. Just linger, right? So fight the impulse to just flee. Secondly, second practical thing you can do, just stand in palm court for 10 solid minutes. I know it's awkward if you don't know anyone. Just plant both feet down for 10 minutes, and I guarantee you what's going to happen is that like, like bees on honey and beauty on flower or vultures on carrion, however you might feel about it, people in this church are going to descend on you to get to know you. But just commit to say, I'm going to stand here. It's going to feel awkward. I don't know anyone. Do not run away into your, your sanctuary by doing this, right? We know a lot of times if you don't want to talk to people, you do this or do this, even if you don't have a text or a call to make, but it just sends, I'm not going to talk to you. Don't do that. You stand there, and it's awkward. It's okay. And people are going to start talking to you. And that essential ingredient of life of being known and being committed and being brought in and being loved, oftentimes begin with the four most benign words. Hi, my name is so-and-so. We want to be a community that's doing Galatians 6.2 or in the words of 1 Thessalonians 3.10, supplying what is lacking in one another's faith. That's the kind of people we want to be. And that's the ideal that Paul is getting at here. 
But Paul warns that can all be derailed by another kind of attitude that he kind of gets into in verses 3 through 5. We won't spend much time on that. Verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. If you if you, ha- if you practice verse 3, you will not practice verse 2. That's what Paul's saying. If you are someone who's prideful and deceived yourself, thinking you're something rather than nothing, you will not practice verses, verse 1 and 2. It's just going to happen that way. In verses 4 and 5, what, what he's getting at, he's not contradicting himself when he, when he tells us to bear one another's burdens, and then at the end we have to bear our own load. What he's saying is that there can be a mentality of saying, well, are you all bearing my burden? Are you all supplying what is lacking in my faith? And, and I'm going to judge whether or not I do that based on if you're doing that. And if you're not doing it, then I'm not going to do it. Paul says that is the wrong way to think about it. The issue isn't whether or not other people are doing it. All of us have to fulfill the law of Christ. You will stand before God on your own, and you will answer whether or not you fulfilled the law of Christ. Don't look to your neighbor next to you, and don't let them be the standard by which you decide whether or not you're going to be obedient to God's commands. That's his driving impulse there in in practicing life together, right? That that idea of mutual accountability webbed in or woven in with personal responsibility. Don't blame the community because your lack of deficiency to move towards them, right? That's what he's getting at. You're going to have to stand before God on your own on this one. Let's move on to the the principle of life together that undergirds the practice, and that's found in our next section, whatever you sow, you will reap, and that's verses 6 through 10. Now, now what looks like a loosely connected uh, commands that don't seem to be wed together are actually held together by the principle that we touched on last week, and that's the principle of, of sowing and reaping. And we see the connection points pretty clearly by the phrase at the, at the end of verse 3, deceives himself, and the, the same phrase almost in verse 7, don't be deceived, right? So, in other words, the reason someone fails to do uh, verse 2, bear one another's burdens, is that they are deceived into thinking that this eternal principle of sowing and reaping does not apply to them. They've deceived themselves. And, and I like the way Paul says, who is, the, who is responsible for deceiving you? Paul says, it's you. Verse 3, that person deceives themselves when they think that this principle of sowing and reaping, what they do does not matter, that they can do whatever they want and not have the consequences. Don't be deceived. Don't let yourself be deceived that way. So these kinds of people will sow seeds thoughtlessly and maybe selfishly, blind to the reality that they will reap a harvest in keeping with the way they have sown, for good or for bad or otherwise. Or people deceive themselves into thinking, hey, I can sow this kind of seed, but I'm going to reap a different kind of harvest. They imagine they can get away with that somehow. And stories abound with people living one kind of life and expecting to get another and not sure why it didn't work out. So people do not sow seeds of pouring into a community of believers in a church but they expect the benefits thereof and are shocked when they don't get it. Or people wonder, uh, they, they don't sow seeds of making God their supreme delight, and they wonder why He seems so irrelevant to their lives or so far away and distant. Or they don't take seriously the fight for their own holiness and the fight against sin, and they wonder why their lives are so often filled with spiritual struggle and defeat. Because the law of sowing and reaping, you cannot avoid it. So the command, don't be deceived in verse 7. Why? Because God's not mocked. 
He's, the word for mock actually refers to the nose and the, and the kind of upward, you know, turn your nose up at someone. You're sneering at God. God's not mocked. Don't be deceived. You might be fooling yourself, living one way, expecting something else, but God's not fooled. That's not the way His reality works. What you sow, you're going to reap, good, bad, or otherwise. That's what Paul's getting at. So, just as the second verse in our first section, bear one another's burdens, was the engine of that section. The second verse in our second section is the engine that, that pushes us forward. What you sow, you will reap. In other words, the practice of bearing one another's burdens is based upon the principle of sowing and reaping, and that principle is teased out even more in these uh, four or five verses in three practical ways. We're, we're just going to talk about them in quick succession. Christian ministry in verse 6 practical holiness in verse 8, and then social justice and goodness in verses 9 through 10. So, in verse 6, Paul is simply reiterating the, the, the principle that those elders that have been put aside full-time for the task of gospel proclamation, uh, he makes this point in 1 Corinthians 9 as well, uh, ought to derive their livelihood from that gospel proclamation. The, the thinking is, so those elders who sow the good spiritual seed in the lives of God's people reap a lively, a phys, their physical livelihood from that sowing. It's their harvest. This is beneficial both for the congregation as well as the elder, right? And then he moves on from, from the particular to the general, from the specific, uh, the, the Christian support of pastors and their physical support to the Christian behavior of their people and their moral behavior. So he goes from the particular to the general in verse 8 about sowing and reaping. And, and as I said last week, we're going to really dive into and contrast the life that's animated by the fruit of the Spirit to the work of the flesh, because that's really important, and we're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. But Paul's driving point here is that both eternal life, in verse 8, and corruption, verse 8, are necessary results of a harvest by what you've sown, or what is, depends on what you will reap. Does that make sense? So, eternal life, both in quantity and quality, as well as corruption, both in quantity and quality, are necessary harvests of a lifestyle that one has sown. That's Paul's point. You can't avoid this principle. And this principle might seem abstract, but when you think about it, it plays out in so many practical ways in our lives. So years ago, I used to tell people, it's a bit antiquated now because culture's changed, but I think the concept's there. I would tell people, I can tell you the story of your life if you just let me look at two books. And I can tell you, whatever you might say to me, however you might champion how much God is meaningful and you love your church and people and you want to blah, 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 you let me look at two books and I can tell you what really is going on. First would be your checkbook. The second would be your date book, right? See, that's kind of antiquated. Like anyone under 40 doesn't know what a checkbook is, and we call them calendars now, but the point still remains. Regardless of what you say to me, if you let me look at those books, I can tell you what your story's all about. See, Christianity, it is not a, a high, I was about to slip into Hawaiian vernacular here, it's not a high, um, lofty ideal that doesn't have traction where we live nine to five, right? Monday through Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. There are always practical realities of our Christian faith, so practical sometimes we don't even see it, but they're there. And they themselves will testify and challenge or confirm our professions. And I'll tell people, and I, I can tell you right now, just tell me what you spend your money on, tell me what you spend your time on, and I can tell you what's important in life. 
for you. And by the way, I don't know how many parents we got in this room. Your kids can do it too. They don't, they don't articulate the way I do, but they know. They watch and they know what's really important to mom and dad by how we spend our money as a family and what we do with our time as a family. And that's the theology they're going to live out of, right? So, practical holiness, chapter 8, what you sow, you will reap. Finally, um, social justice and kindness or goodness, verses 9 and 10. Paul understands, Paul gets that Christian service can be tiring and it can be exacting work, right? Whether you are uh, restoring uh, or fighting against someone's personal sin or you're fighting against kind of corporate sin and, and unjust laws in our society, that can be tiring work. Whether you are supplying what is lacking in someone's faith and you're discipling them or you're just supplying what's lacking at the local food bank, that, that can be time-consuming and inconvenient. And in our society, doing gospel good can be a challenge. And as things look, they can even bring a level of persecution in the polit current political climate. Paul knows that Christians need an incentive, and so he gives one. He says, do not grow weary because you will, indicative verb, reality, you will reap a reward, so don't give up. Now, I know, I know I've got some really mature saints, and you're going to say, well, I don't need a reward. I serve Jesus because I love Him. I don't need no reward. I want rewards, quite frankly, right? And the reason I say that is because Jesus promotes that. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures here where the moth and rust and thief can destroy them and steal them. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for having treasures or wanting treasures. He rebukes them for not knowing where the real treasures are at. He says, no, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You know why? Because there's not going to be any moth, there's no rust, and no thief is going to steal them. That's where you lay your treasures up. Oh, I want those rewards because my Father promises them. But those rewards are often not what we anticipate as rewards, right? When we're first new Christians, we think about heaven and we think about all the, the mansions and the streets of gold, and we read that in Revelation and go, wow, that's going to be awesome. But as you grow, you realize, oh no, those rewards are going to be freed from sin, a capacity to love God in a way I could never do in this world. Uh, I will not be thinking about myself. I will not be selfish, but selfless. And it won't just because I've cultivated this discipline, it will just flow like living water. That's the kind of rewards we want, isn't it? That would make a utopian society, wouldn't it? That's what Galatians is trying to make us think about. So Paul says, don't get tired of going, doing good even when no one notices or cares because God both notices and God cares. So he has this phrase at the end of verse 10. So uh, as you have the opportunity, as you have the opportunity, this is not a passage that's telling you quit your job, work for Peace Corps or Samaritan's Purse, although it can mean that. What he's saying is that as you are going in the responsibilities and obligations God's given you, and as opportunities come up, take hold of them as you're living your life to do good to everyone, those you agree with and those you don't, those who are like you and those who are not. Do good to everyone and anyone, but particularly do good to those brothers and sisters in Christ who make up your gospel community. Do good to the people sitting right next to you, especially to those. Now, let me wrap this up in the remaining time that we have. 
to talk about the, the, the struggle our culture has in wanting utopia, but embracing values that are very contradictory to the very nature of utopia. We talked about the two themes running throughout this passage, mutual accountability and personal responsibility. Now, I'm going to put it on the screen. You can see it there. All throughout this passage are woven this dynamic between mutual accountability and personal responsibility. Life together requires both of these. Now, it's, not gonna, it's still not going to bring a um, utopian society this side of heaven because we're still struggling with sin. But at least if consistently applied, we are learning more and more to be what that community ought to be about. And bo- don't both of these challenge our cultural sensitivities? This is really, truly an alternative narrative for us. Mutual accountability means that we are a part of each other's lives, that there is an obligation that I have to you and you have to me, that it's not about just me and Jesus and whatever I want to do. I'm part of a people. It it means giving up this notion that it's about just me and God and realize it's about me and God and His people. That's what God is interested in, making a community, a a people, an ecclesia, people called out to be together. He's not interested in in a group of collected individuals with their own rights and preferences, right? So so there's this mutual accountability. I give up the, the cultural lie of autonomy, that my own life is not really mine to do with as I please, my time, how I spend my, my finances, how I spend my time. It's not just up to me. After all, I'm a created being. We all are just created. Who am I to tell the Creator what to do, how, how I spend my time, right? I, I spend it, we spend it in accordance to what He has desired for us. So there's mutual accountability. Personal responsibility, that's another one that's very, very different. Our culture wants to say everything else is responsible. My environment, my, my nurture has developed me, but the gospel tells me, no, I'm personally responsible. Are you personally responsible? Are you doing everything you can to cultivate a walk in the Spirit? Are you doing everything you can to crucify your flesh and its sinful desires? Are you doing everything you can to bear one another's burdens and supply what is lacking in someone's faith? Right? By the way, these work together. You can't just have one of them. If you don't believe in one of them, you're not going to do the other, vice versa. If I don't believe I'm obligated to you, I won't exercise my responsibility to do those things. If I'm not exercising my responsibility to do those things, there is no benefit to you, vice versa, right? God in His wisdom has so designed the world, the church to work, where we live, really are, we live for His glory and the good of His people. Let me conclude by just tying it up with one last story from John's gospel. One of the most impactful moments in the gospel of John comes, I think, the last chapter, maybe the the second to the last chapter. Peter, who had rejected Christ three times, you remember that? I don't know Jesus, I don't know Jesus, I don't know Jesus, and he just is broken because Jesus prophesied that. And Peter and Jesus were like this. And so when Jesus wants to meet with Peter, you can imagine Peter's excitement to, yes, me and Jesus again, we're going to be best friends and back in the inner circle. And Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter goes, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said something that's so counterintuitive. It's so, we, we miss it, I think, because it's so obvious. He says, good, go tend my sheep. And then a few minutes passes and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter goes, I, I just answered that. But yes, I get it. He's, he's answering, he's asked me three times because I rejected him three times. I get this. Yes, I love you, Jesus. And Jesus says, that's good. Go shepherd my people. 
And a third time, Jesus says to Peter, Jesus, do you, uh, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's getting discouraged. But don't you know? I love you. I said it twice already. Yes, I love you. I love you. I love you. There. And Jesus says, that's good. Now go love my people. In other words, there is no concept in the New Testament of us loving Jesus without a direct application to living and loving and serving his people. And when Jesus is restoring, Peter the apostle, he put that front and center, says, look, you can say all you want about loving me, Peter, but the way I'm going to see it is the way you love, tend to, and shepherd my people whom I love. We want to be a community through the power of the Spirit, guided by the power of God's Word, that we bear one another's burdens and are supplying what is lacking in each other's faith. And that's going to look as different as it is as many people are sitting here. But that's the target goal we all have. And by God's grace, we pray we can be that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of the book of Galatians. I mean, it's just, through any page in Galatians, we springboard into the other aspects of the gospel and vice versa. Lord, help us to do what is so important and so hard, but thank you that every week we see these kinds of examples in our own congregation of people loving one another, bearing each other's burdens, and supplying what is lacking. Help us to excel still more, that the world may look at us us as a peculiar people who do not live for the autonomous individual, but for the crucified Savior. And we thank you for it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.